Chapter 14 of Studies in Stagecraft. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Wolfgang Bass. Studies in Stagecraft by Clayton Hamilton. Plausibility in Plays. A play can scarcely succeed in the theatre unless during the two hours' traffic of the stage the particular audience it appeals to believes the story that it tells. And no piece can be considered an important contribution to dramatic literature unless, upon a critical examination, it proves itself to have been conceived and conducted in accordance with the admittable laws of life. The first question that must be asked of any play that appeals for popularity is, is it plausible? And the only and all-inclusive question that must be asked of any play that bids for more than passing commendation is the question, is it true? There are innumerable plays that pass the first test successfully and then falter before the second. So long as an audience is gathered in the theater, it offers to the playwright the advantage of a crowd's credulity. And the actors, by sincerity of art, may charitably cover up a multitude of sins upon the author's part. It is only afterward, when the crowd has disintegrated into its individual components, and these individuals have escaped from the immediate influence of the actor's personal appeal, that in many cases it becomes possible to perceive in retrospect that the dramatist has trifled with the laws of life. And, as a gambling chance, the playwright is warranted in figuring that very few people will analyze his effort intellectually after they have left the theater. Not ultimate truth, but only immediate plausibility, is all he needs to master if his ambition is set only on success. But momentary plausibility is no antidote against the opium of time, and the world will consent to remember the plays of yesteryear only when they have told unfalteringly some truths of human life which was eminently worth the telling. For truth is the talisman we all are seeking in that running toward the rainbow's foot, which is our little life upon this planet. And we are very busy in the running, and cannot pause for long to listen to tales that are not true. Even plausibility itself we are willing to discard if the unplausible may symbolize for us some nearer revelation of reality. The bluebird is not a plausible representation of experience, yet it is eternally, immortally true. To tell the truth is the very difficult and delicate task, far heavier than moving mountains, and truth often may be told more lucidly by some dreamful alteration of the unrevelatory terms of actuality. Often we are voyaging in search of some treasure island buried beyond our actual horizon, and to see it we need the mystic aid of a mirage. The poetic drama is a telescope through which we may look at truth so high that without its aiding intervention they would remain invisible and for that imaginative searching of the skies there are cryptic astronomic principles which transcend the ordinary rules of criticism. At present, in considering only the need for plausibility in the ordinary play, we must make a certain reservation in favor of the dramatist. We must permit him to begin with almost any premise, and we must allow him to end as he conveniently can.
provided that during the course of his narrative itself, he does not impose any undue tax on our credulity. Any work of art is a conventional patterning of certain selected details of nature, and the convention must be most apparent in the beginning of the work and in the end. For life itself is a continuous sequence of causation. It shows no absolute beginnings and no utter ends. Nothing in life is initiatory, nothing is conclusive. Not even birth is a beginning, for the shadowy and disconcerting science of heredity teaches us to regard it as only an incident in the progress of the race. Not even death is final, for no monumental tombstone can hold an influence quiescent, and our slightest actions vibrate in ever-widening circles throughout incalculable time. But the play, by the conditions of its representment, must have a beginning and an end. It derives its possibility of existence from an initial and a terminal falsification of the admitted facts of nature. Hence, we must pardon the playwright for any necessary cutting of the Gordian knot of his structure at the close. And we may pardon him also for starting his narrative with a posture of circumstances that is scarcely plausible. The one thing that we may not pardon is a violation of plausibility during the progress of the actions from the conventional start point to the conventional termination. We will grant him his own conditions at the outset, provided that he shall remain faithful to the legitimate requirements of those conditions until the time comes for him to empty the theater and send us home. He may end his play with a wedding and delude us with the amiable fiction that marriage is an end instead of a beginning, provided that he has led up to the marriage through a logical development of the motives, and he may begin with a staggering impossibility, as Sophocles began in Oedipus King or Goldsmith began in She Stoops to Concur, to mention two great plays as far apart as possible in mood. Provided that thereafter, when we have granted the conditions precedent to the action, he shall rigorously tell the truth that is necessitated by those conventional conditions. In other words, it may be formulated as a practical rule that a playwright should gather whatever impossibilities may lie latent in his story into that section of the entire narrative that is conceived to have occurred before the play begins. We are willing to accept an antidescent unplausibility because it is merrily stated to us in conventional expository lines, but we refuse to accept a subsequent unplausibility because we have to watch it being acted out before our very eyes upon the stage. A playwright may begin by asking us to concede, for the sake of the entertainment he is about to offer us, that two is equal to four, but we must afterward adhere logically to the inference that four is equal to eight and eight is equal to sixteen. If he subsequently tell us that four is equal to nine, we shall immediately revolt from the convention of credulity and reject his narrative as unbelievable. End of chapter 14